0: Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard study of adult development and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin! Today on our show, we have Julie Dillon, who is a nutrition therapist on a mission. Her focus is on her client's relationship with food and helping them build a new, more intuitive, positive approach to eating. A passionate proponent of the non-diet movement, Julie teaches people to be more mindful, intuitive, and joyful around eating. In response to her client's fears that without a diet, they'll be giving up, she responds, it's not letting yourself go, it's letting yourself be. Julie blogs, podcasts, and presents widely on the subject of intuitive eating. Welcome, Julie.
1: Well, thank you, Nicole. It's so great to be here, and I love having this opportunity to chat with you.
0: That's great. And, you know, I just want to start, you know, I understand that you're one of the few women in the universe who has not been on a diet. And I, I just love for our listeners to hear the story of, you know, your training and how you started on this mission.
1: hmm So... I would love to share the story. It's it's definitely a twisted, <laughs> bumpy kind of journey that I've been on. And I appreciate there's so many uh, dietitians, you know, I'm trained as a registered dietitian who have a similar kind of experience. And, and like you said, I, I've never been on a diet. And part of my experience as a dietitian has been eye opening, because I appreciate now why I've never been on a diet. You know, I've, I've come from a family that's really um, always been in a thin body. It's just genetically how we're kind of designed, I guess. And um, if you line up all the Duffy's, Duffy's my maiden name, if you line them all up, you would see people who look like me in a smaller body. So I, I have always walked this earth with lots of thin privilege. And um, so I was never really pushed into dieting. I certainly experienced diet culture and, you know, living in a world where um, femaleness is... You know, we're supposed to be compliant and following rules about food and exercise that I didn't, but I, I really rejected those, and I think I had an easier time because I looked appropriate. you know, for some people. But when I was looking at what I wanted to do as a grown-up, I found nutrition just by kind of accident, and I kind of just went with it because I like science and and um, psychology, and I actually really wanted to be a therapist <laughs> more than I think, but, <laughs> but I was discouraged from doing that. Um, but, you know, I eventually ended up doing that anyway. But uh, so what I was in school, you know, the way dietitians are conventionally trained is a medical model. And it's, you know, most of us have a minor in chemistry or some kind of science. It's, it's, we basically are all the cl- same clients or same classes rather as med students. And we're just trained in the medical model. And, um, after I was done with that training, we all have to do this like really challenging competitive year. Um, it's kind of like a residency where we, we call it a dietetic internship. And only half of, of people who have a degree in nutrition get a placement. So there's half of mm. these almost dietitians out there that never got to finish their degree because it's just there's not enough placements. So when I was in that, I really started to appreciate the hospital setting and how that medical model was evolving to support people who were already appearing compliant, you know, people who are in thinner bodies like myself. And I was starting to notice the fat phobia in hospitals. And I thought that was, there was something about it that just felt like it, it tugged at my like integrity, you know, like that wasn't uh-huh. right.
0: Uh-huh. And,
1: um, you know, I found so many people that I was working with and and early on in my career, I specialized in working with children of higher weight and their families. and. What I noticed is so many of these families were eating in a way that was quote unquote good, yet they were living in this higher weight. So there was lots of assumptions that they were either lying or they weren't trying hard enough and it didn't take too long to appreciate that I wasn't really well equipped <laughs> to do my job. And so that's when I sought out training as a counselor. So I have a master's in mental health counseling and it basically just helped me to get a bigger picture but I really still thought at that point that I needed to fix people, you know, and part of that fixing was helping people lose weight. Like that would, cause I was mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not mm-hmm. helping people lose weight. So obviously I'm not doing it right.
0: Mm-hmm. And I wasn't
1: doing it right, but I was looking for the wrong option because I wanted people to be healthier, but it took me a really long time to appreciate that weight loss is not a behavior. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like, it may or may not happen. And when you make it like the, Thing to shoot for i feel like we lose health because then healthy behaviors of like moving in a way that feels good and is sustainable enjoyable and maybe challenging well that doesn't become the important part it's like i need to make sure i exercise a certain amount to burn off xyz mm-hmm. and then you know as i was doing this work early on i was also starting to specialize in eating disorders and i'm like wow Diet culture so, sure sounds a lot like anorexia. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? and so what? Why are my clients with anorexia like hugged and given sympathy, but my clients at higher weights are told to practice anorexia harder? You know, uh-huh. and, that, and that, yeah, and that's really what pushed me to that mission you were talking about because um, that that really didn't sit well with me. I can remember for a good six months not getting good sleep because I was teaching diet culture to people at higher weights, um, prepping people for gastric bypass. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then working with clients the next hour, where I was saying, you know, trust your body, all foods are good foods. <laughs> you know, And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. This is not good. But you know, as a dietitian, many of us are, even if we come to that conclusion, many of us still have to practice uh, to help people lose weight. And, and that's basically what my boss said is, you know, if you want to, that's fine and dandy that you have this belief, but if you want this job, you have to keep doing mm-hmm, what you're doing. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Which sounded like a setup. You were saying that, you know, you had people in higher weights and you were giving them, I'm guessing diets and it wasn't working.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I feel like what was happening and this was back in 2004. So, you know, a number of years ago now, but at the time I think we were as a culture and medical and healthcare, we just thought we had to try harder. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to name any products, but you know, it was, I was pushing like liquid diets and stuff like that. It Mm -hmm. was um, really, really problematic behavior that I was pushing and pathological. Certainly if I saw someone at a weight that was considered more appropriate doing that, I would have taken them right to the hospital, but I Mm -hmm. was encouraging my higher weight clients to be tortured by that. And, you know, for anyone listening, I don't know if, Um, But I feel like a lot of people don't really consider it in that way. And and because higher weight is considered such a horrible thing, but it's really torture to do that to your body. (laughs) And um, it can – basically, we know from research that restricting nutrients like calories, carbohydrates, um, fats, like restricting any of those promotes the brain to get so preoccupied and Mm -hmm. feel like it has obsessive-compulsive disorder – anxiety disorder, like literally some people in research would hallucinate when they, mm. when they would be restricted. And certainly dream
0: what, about food too.
1: dream about food. Yes. Sleep gets disturbed. And what we've been able to put together, because we can't replicate that research anymore. It's so unethical. But like what we've been able to put together is that that's the body's way of saving itself. You know, it, of course, when your body thinks you're on a deserted island somewhere without food and you're finally, you see some food, it's going to like say, eat all you can and don't stop because you Mm -hmm. don't know when you're going to get it again. And don't go to sleep because I need you to think about food. Go look for some food.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: for so many people at higher weights, that's, they think it's because they don't have like low willpower or a character flaw. And what I always end up feeling like I need to convey to anyone listening who is in that place is like, you're not lacking willpower or have a character flaw you're just being a successful human Mm -hmm. that's just how we're wired to stay alive Mm -hmm. and so that that that's kind of what brought me to and that is like a super cliff notes version but like that's (laughs) what brought me to really rejecting diets and um you know my life experience is different than people at higher weights for sure because I've never felt that kind of pressure but I really am trying to um be an ally as much as possible to um help the medical community to appreciate that experience and, um, I don't know, just really listen more to where people are. And so many people are already eating quote unquote healthy, um, doing everything they're supposed to do and, and moving their body. And, um, they're just think they're not doing it well enough because they're not small enough yet. And that's where I feel like we're getting it wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you, you know, You and I think about this, uh, these topics a lot, um, but I don't know if our listeners have an appreciation of what thin privilege means. Can you, can you talk just a, a bit about what that actually, what that term means? Well, you know,
1: it's something that for me personally is acknowledging that, you know, when I go to the doctor for like strep throat or... Um, my knee hurts, that I'm going to be listened to, that I'm going to be given a range of recommendations, and I'm not going to be – my weight's not going to be the blame. And also I can walk through any store and find clothes that fit me. Um, I can go to any restaurant, and I never, ever have to think about if a chair is going to be comfortable or not. Mm-hmm. I can go to a class – in go to college or grad school or go to any lecture and not have to worry about the chairs. You know, so many people have um, been so open with their time and patience to explain to me how hard that is. And, um, you know, I've gotten to know a number of um, nutrition and counseling students at higher weights, and they talk about how much time it takes for them the weeks before school starts every semester, they have to go look at every classroom they're gonna be in and see if they're gonna fit in the chairs mm-hmm. and whether or not they need to try to figure out something else. And, you know, classrooms change as semester gets closer, right? And so when that happens last minute, that really sends them through a loop. And I and again, like the restaurant thing, you know, going to a restaurant mm-hmm. and, and not having to think about it. But then actually when a person's at the restaurant, You know, I can order anything, and nobody's really going to bat an eye. I can remember um, when I first – I appreciated this part of my privilege. I was speaking with um, a client of mine, and she was saying that she wanted – and this was so long ago. Gosh, it was like 15 years ago. And I'm so appreciative because she always is like, you can tell anybody the story you want.
0: (laughs) But she was, like,
1: talking about how she really wanted to order a hamburger and fries for lunch and, um, with a group of like colleagues. And I said, you know, I just had that for lunch. It's okay for you to eat that. And, and I was trying to say, you know, as a dietitian, I want you to have permission. And, and she said, Julie, do you know how different it is for you to order a hamburger and fries and me? And she identified as fat. And she's like, as a fat woman to order a hamburger and fries is so different.
0: Mm-hmm, and the judgment, the,
1: the judgment that comes with it. And, you know, she's expected to, she basically has to eat for show, you know, and that's something Evelyn Tripoli taught me, that kind of vernacular, you know, when you're living in a higher weight, you have to eat for show in order to show people that you're trying to be smaller, because there's nothing worse in this world than a person in a higher weight who's not trying to lose weight. Like, that's Mm. the ultimate, like, Mm. radical rebellion, right? But yeah, so that's just a little smidge of thin privilege, you know, it's, um, I think, I can walk through life and there's so many things that I don't have to think about. And I, I, I'm a mother of two and I'm almost 43. So uh, something that I'm starting to appreciate is that having time to not think is one of the greatest things in life. (laughs) So like whenever my brain is on, on, on all the time, I get so exhausted. And so I try to put myself in someone's shoes who's having to always think about those things. And that is stressful. And um, I often hear people talk about it as a death by thousands of paper cuts. You know, it's like mm. these tiny little insults all the time that add up to being torture, like pure mm. torture. So mm-hmm.
0: you have such deep compassion for people who experience weight stigma every day. Hmm.
1: well, I'm glad I, i'm I'm glad that it comes through that way. I feel like I'm still learning, so mm-hmm.
0: I probably
1: will have some moments next week where I'll learn some new things that wasn't even on my radar Mm. like one thing that I learned recently um was I was I was speaking and this is the person I also asked for permission to share this because I just thought this was so mind-blowing from like an employment perspective is um she's in a higher weight and looking for a job in a medical type setting and you know whenever you work in a medical setting you have to do a drug test and you have to um, this may be kind of crass, but you have to go pee in a toilet, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to do it with the door open, and you have to hold this little teeny tiny cup under you and pee in the toilet. And her body is not, was not able to do that, mm-hmm. and um, it literally took hours to figure out a solution. Oh my
0: gosh. And she that almost sounds left. Like humiliating.
1: So humiliating. And so um and and she said, you know, this is something before a job interview I think about for days and days and days. Mm-hmm. And um, of course some places have a solution. Like they have a little system where they can you can hold the cup on this longer stick. Okay. And, you know, or or you can hook it to the toilet. But they didn't have that. And so she almost left. And so then she wouldn't have gotten this job, wouldn't have been able to advance her career she's a brilliant woman. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And what a sad thing for us to not have her, you know, be able to provide her voice. And so, um, so yeah, anyone who's listening who maybe is in a similar body size as me, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And so whenever we make comments about our body, um, that in some ways, really just kind of normal, sadly, about like, disparaging comments like, oh, I hate my butt, or I need to lose some weight, or I'm too Mm. fat, Mm -hmm. um, how that's another paper cut to someone in a higher weight, um, Mm -hmm. or someone in a higher weight than you, or someone who thinks they're in a high, too high of a weight, you know, how that's um, contributing to this harm. And the thing that makes me all riled up about it, and why I focus so much on really appreciating how my privilege is in the small body is that we know contributing to more of that just makes triglycerides go higher, (laughs) makes insulin higher, cholesterol higher, um, inflammation worse. And so the very health problems that we blame on higher weight could really be explained by the oppression of living in a higher weight. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually people don't just have like one type of uh, marginalization. You know, people, maybe a, a person of color, or gender non-conforming and in a higher weight, you know, so there's other aggressions going against them. So mm-hmm. um, it's really opened my eyes. And, you know, I know, Nicole, you're trained as a um, therapist. And so things like that are probably in your curriculum but like as a dietitian that's just not something we're taught I had to Mm -hmm. kind of learn it the hard way yeah I mean
0: (laughs) you're taught you're you're taking uh topics right out of the social work curriculum yeah but um yeah but you know we still live in the world we live in and we're still surrounded by this um you know fat phobia and and weight stigma you know one thing I wonder about being um, doing what you do and caring so deeply about it and probably seeing it almost everywhere is, how do you deal with your own exhaustion of, I think of it like, you remember Sisyphus, the Greek uh, character who would roll the boulder up and then it rolled down, roll the mm-hmm. boulder up and roll down. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you deal with your own um you know, exhaustion about fighting a system that is all about making people feel like they've had a personal failing
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: because they're not in a body that is idealized.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't, I'm like, I feel like that's something that I am been really focusing on in the last few years. Um, people who know me pretty well know that I was like feeling like almost like a burnout Mm -hmm. Um, and so what I've really tried to do, and I'm also a mom and a primary caregiver. So part of the burnout was just like, I'm exhausted. Right. And so what I've become really good at is, um, saying no and, um, boundaries and people may consider the boundaries to be too anal retentive, but you know what? (laughs) Um, I really find my strength is meeting with people one-on-one and I want them to feel safe with me. And then we, I want them to find ways to replicate that experience in their life. And so, um, I'm trying just to focus on that, you know, just, um, this is the place where I am able to make change and, and then, you know, raising my own children to, um, be, more accepting of diverse bodies walking this earth. And and if anything, wanting to – I want them to see the beauty in that. And so I, I have um, given myself permission to not always fight. I do feel guilt for that, though, because I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, it's so easy for me to just check out. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to live with it. But um, I also um, try really – I try really hard, and I also do lots of therapy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: so, so, like – I feel like my therapy is one of the things that I, I can't let go because it's where I can, you know, discuss all of that confusion and compassion fatigue mm-hmm. and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So
0: Yeah. I mean, you could spend every waking moment fighting this fight.
1: And I think some people do. And for me personally, this may be too much information, but like, I'm just not someone that can work all the time. I'm just, yeah. you know, I, I end up being, um, I, I, I call myself an, an extroverted introvert. So I, I get drained really easily. Like physically my body just shuts down. So, mm. um, if I'm going to do any of it, I have to be protective.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like, uh, sounds like good advice. Hello, Zestful Agers. First, I want to thank you so much for your enthusiasm and interest in the podcast. Words cannot really describe how fun it is to make this for you. We are now in the tens of thousands of downloads and Zestful Aging is still very young. We've heard from inspiring women from all over the world, and I hope it has made your life richer and helped you be more zestful as you navigate aging. In addition to being fun, making a weekly podcast is a surprising amount of work, so I want to encourage you to become a patron today. It's the way I can continue bringing you in-depth, thought-provoking interviews without sponsorship, aka commercials, and I've added a special free gift just for being a listener to the podcast. It's called my best ever self-care manual. And again, it's based on research and my 25 years experience as a psychotherapist. So hop on over to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging and download the free manual. And while you're there, Donate what you might pay for your cup of coffee today. It will make you feel good. I promise. So, You know, as you know, this podcast really is geared towards women who are middle-aged and over, and I, I wanted to ask you how you might help a woman who comes to see you who is, let's say, an empty nester, let's say, you know, really in a... A place of recreation like okay my old life is not here anymore my kids are grown they may or may not be back and forth um, maybe reassessing my marriage maybe thinking about retirement when they come to see you do you do you see that their challenges are different than the younger clients you see or or how does that work what what do they talk about with you as older older women
1: So I really was looking forward to midlife myself because I thought it would mean that it wouldn't be as much focus on appearance or keeping up with the Joneses. Um, And, you know, I said earlier, I'm 43. I think the technical midlife age is very young, 45, right? But uh, I'm like, what I'm gathering from research and talking to people identifying with being in midlife is that no, no. <laughs> it's not, you don't get a, like this break or this respite um, culturally. And what I'm noticing is these really typical life transitions that you talk about, like the empty emptiness, um, relationship changes, um, aging parents, parents passing away, mm-hmm. um, changing jobs, retirement, like all those really normal expected transitions in midlife um, where there's obviously going to be grief and challenges and where someone – Again, I feel like it's obvious. It's going to need support. These are hard, hard things, hard changes. Oh, and excuse me on that. So these are going to be these are going to be very hard changes. And what I see happening instead is this message culturally that if your husband's going to leave you, well, go to the gym. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're trying to get a promotion get a facelift like instead of going for support which is what emotionally and physically people in midlife naturally are going to need and crave and benefit from they're putting it on their body and i i think it's because um in midlife we're expected that if we want to continue to be seen and heard we need to look young and thin
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know there's still that pressure and um I am I'm sad to admit but I remember watching a um, real Housewives of some City <laughs> <laughs> on Bravo a couple of years ago and one of them was going through menopause and she was talking about basically that you know I'm not gonna let my self go you know there was that feeling that um, my body is changing and I need to stay young and beautiful if I want to keep my husband, if I want to stay relevant and mm-hmm. so I'm gonna fight it tooth and nail and what a sad existence as like biologically we have to fight aging we have to fight the very processes that help with the aging process because we're not supposed to look different and um you know i know menopause in particular is something that is connected to a typical weight change of about 15 pounds that's like just a typical average you know many people it's more you know but that's a really common amount that mm-hmm. is cited in research
0: to gain and, to gain weight post menopause mm-hmm.
1: oh. or, or around menopause and after mm-hmm. and um, like I think it was like the two to three years within menopause you know somehow and that's a really typical amount and what we've been able to connect is how adding that fat stores helps release extra estrogen as it's waning in the body because ovulation is going away and having that extra fat stores helps with the symptoms of estrogen leaving. And so like the very thing that our body is like intuitively preparing for to help us deal with hot flashes and whatever else comes with. Uh
0: menopause,
1: And it's like, they're fighting it. And so no wonder women during menopause are so miserable because they're not allowed to just let their body be and do what it's supposed to do. And, um, like that's a, I know people point to, oh, there's like a health, just negative health effect of central weight gain. Mm -hmm. And sometimes things are both, you know, sometimes um, increased adipose cells is connected to like inflammation or something like that. And it also is protective. And I think that's hard sometimes in medicine to appreciate that it's not either or Mm -hmm. sometimes it's both. And for What I see with women who come to see me, you know, I'm someone that really um, has marketed myself as someone who has, I can help someone who's trying to no longer have a disorder relationship with food. So people come to see me, they already are seeing some disorder and they're wanting to eat normally again. They don't wanna be focusing on diet culture. And what I see happening is like fighting that, whatever comes from fighting that fat and in the central adiposity during menopause, it ends up harming health more than anything because people are isolating themselves. They're limiting whole food groups. um, Mm -hmm. They're um, exercising to the point that it's causing more problems. You know, they're getting injured. And Mm -hmm. of course, negative body image out the yin yang. So so it ends up being more harmful. So um, I'm a big proponent in like our body is pretty spectacular. Um, and that it, it it has a way to survive. And, you know, it, again, I have lots of privilege because I've never had a body that was considered unacceptable. But I also um, believe this for people of any size, that our body um, knows what it needs. And the more we don't mess with it, the healthier we are.
0: It, that must be really... Uh shocking news to some of your clients i i I suspect that sitting with you it might be the first time they've felt any kind of body acceptance or even the beginning that wait a minute you're telling me i'm okay Mm -hmm. this is this is uh, uh, radical yeah i do call it that i'm like i know this sounds a bit
1: radical Mm -hmm. whenever i lecture on it like college settings or something. That's exactly what I call it too. I'm like, I know this is conflicting with everything you've learned so far mm-hmm. and it's gonna make you uncomfortable. And that's okay. That's my intention. <laughs> but but for someone in my office, usually what I get is, Julie, this is the first time I felt safe with a healthcare provider. And oh. and people um you know what we know with, with healthcare is when people don't connect with a dietitian or a doctor or, or any kind of healthcare that for years and years, that's not a good thing. Right. And providing weight, what we call like weight-inclusive care, um, people come back. They they make sure that they're connecting because they feel like they belong. And that's I feel like I wish I wish every medical or health care provider had that as their foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that foundation is laid, and we know that the person feels safe there. Then you can, like, work on interventions or whatever you want to do. But I feel like that needs to be the first and foremost. And, um, yeah, you're right. Like, there's people definitely that's really normal um, for a few months just to grapple with that idea and to let that sink in. And, man, it's so great. when I, when I, I can tell when people are getting to a place where they're realizing that they don't need to be fixed, that uh-huh. the world needs to be fixed. Often people come in <clears> – <throat> excuse me. They come in – in a place of like total anger. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably sound sick and twisted, but I, I love when that happens because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, they're not a person's not putting it inside. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not right. on themselves. They're putting it where it needs to go. And yeah, they're pissed off. So, yeah. like, I wasted my life right. thinking I needed to do this in order to be worthy. And I've been worthy
0: all along. And yeah. that's or where like transformation. a community. Yes.
1: Yeah. I'm like, that's, I, you know the anger doesn't last forever but it's a really important time
0: do, are there particular uh, books or podcasts or other resources that you offer people in this uh, in this part of their process
1: so in I live in um, central North Carolina it's a pretty small town and what I encourage people to do is um, connect with as many people as possible that, have a similar outlook. Um, I have a a handful of therapists and doctors that I refer people to. What I want them to do is start to build a community. And thankfully, we have podcasts and online support that provides um, that voice. I really am enjoying a podcast called She's All Fat. It's a Uh fabulous one, Um, especially for people who are um, um, newer to – body positivity, I guess you could say, or um, wanting to um, just hear what normal life is like for people who have radically stepped into Mm self-acceptance and they're at a a higher weight. I really like that one. And and, um, so connecting with just voices, I think, is really important. And um, finding online communities. Again, there's a couple conferences that um, usually I feel like as – um, healthcare providers we know about, Nicole, like uh, the Binge Eating Disorder Association mm-hmm. or ASDA, the Association for Size Diversity, and Health. Those are two conferences that are national most years, and they're open to professionals, but they're also open to anyone. And so for a lot of clients that I know, they'll go to those and they'll connect to people who look like them and, um, and get, get more support. Like I really want people to have a community then to mm-hmm. kind of cling on
0: to, yeah, that, you know? Absolutely. And you also have a specialty in PCOS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. This is a, a population of people that die culture really has, um, trampled over because, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, if any listener is not really aware of what it is, it's, um, a condition affecting, um, women or anyone with an ovary, you know, or two, <laughs> and um, that has some hormonal dysregulation. And what ends up occurring is there's like this genetic slash environmental kind of occurrence. I We're kind of uh, murky on the details because there's very little research into PCOS. I feel like it's starting to pick up, but, you know, at least one in 10 women have it. Some people are saying one in seven now. And for the amount of research we have on it is really, really... Pathetic, but um, anyway, um, over time there's this hormonal imbalance and there's high circulating testosterone and other androgens. So, women have facial hair, um, mm-hmm. may have male pattern baldness, ex- extra hair in places they don't want it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then there's a um, usually a, a difference or some kind of abnormality with menstruation. So many people struggle with infertility. It's the number one cause of ovulatory infertility. And um, so there's like a, my body doesn't work kind of thing. And it's growing all this hair uh, and huh. central adiposity or like more weight gain in the stomach. It doesn't happen for everyone, but for uh, a good portion of people with PCOS, they experience this. And so what, um, unfortunately, what people are told is that weight gain caused the PCOS, which is totally wrong. Um, You know, there's people walking around with PCOS who are not in a larger body. So how can weight gain cause it? (laughs) Um, But they're basically told, you know, until I won't give you fertility treatment until you lose X amount of weight, or, you know, the only way to treat this is through diet and exercise. And I started to specialize in PCOS, not because I was excited to to treat another medical condition, because I wasn't, I'm really a food behavior person. And so many of my clients who are at higher weights and in the throes of anorexia had PCOS. Like they were eating so low amount oh, of food yep. and they were literally being tortured and their docs were like, well, you're just not trying hard enough. Just eat less. Oh I'm like, goodness. they're eating so little calories. Like they will, no, this is not good. And um, yeah, so I feel like they're a group of people that experience tons of weight discrimination in the medical setting. And, um, and you know, they're, they, there's like this feeling of not feeling like a, a woman because of the, the hair differences mm. and
0: double stigma. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I have a PCOS and food peace group. That's what I call it. Um, on Facebook that's free that anybody with PCOS who's willing to not talk about diets is always free to join. Um, but one, one thing I asked yesterday, actually was like, what's the one thing you wish, um, any of your healthcare providers knew about PCOS and so much of it was like, I just wish you would ask me actually how I'm eating instead of assuming that I'm eating too much. Or I wish you didn't just talk about my weight. I wish you actually gave me information. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and lots of lots of shame and stuff associated with that. And I think as a dietitian, I knew like fear based practices and shame based practices are often like the first tools we reach for. And it stinks because shame like based treatment has been associated with poor health for a long time in research like Mm. we already know it doesn't work and it just makes people sicker so um
0: yeah if all this stuff worked uh we'd be in very different uh position right now as a culture
1: exactly yeah yeah Yeah. totally
0: yeah wow there are anything you'd like to say sort of as we wrap up, any small steps that uh, people can try if they want to sort of put their toe into this new world of food mm-hmm. peace and they, ha- you know, they've been chronic dieters and they know that diets don't work, but they don't know what else to try. Yeah. What are the really first small steps for people curious about this, uh, this radical kind of, uh, process that you describe?
1: I I feel like it's important to really give yourself a lot of compassion in that place. And one of the best, uh, I'm not going to say best, but like one of the first things I want people to know is that they don't need to be fixed. And the, and the trying to fix is probably harming your health more than anything. Mm-hmm. And that um, you can trust your body. and it, And it's okay if you don't love it. It's okay if you still want to lose weight. It's okay if it's hard to respect your body. But what if just for three or six months, you let yourself not diet? And in the beginning, it's super scary. Uh, I think it's um, exciting, but also terrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so just honoring that that's normal. And I have a blog post, actually, that like, kind of talks about that. And it, It's, um, let's see, it's Julie Dillon, R.D., dot com slash scary hunger I believe oh, is, that. is that okay yeah so if you're wanting to know kind of some first steps that's a good one to kind of because it's really just trying to reestablish kind of a barometer because when we're on autopilot with diets we're following a list you know or this is when you eat this is when you don't eat and you take that away um, it's a really normal to be like, well, then now what, you know, mm-hmm. what do I do now? And that's so scary. And what, um, Evelyn Triboli, I actually, I remember learning from her was that, you know, doing some barometer work where you just schedule a few times a day, you know, every couple hours where you just intentionally pause and ask yourself, you know, what, what do I need right now? Um, am I tired? <laughs> do I need to pee? Uh-huh. <laughs> am I hungry? Am uh-huh. I cold? And really I feel like it's a mindfulness technique that, just And that little step sounds like nothing, but I see it opening up so much um, like a synapses in the brain, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it helps with just um, helping the brain to reconnect to the body
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that I feel like allows for more. And then if someone, because they're listening to this podcast, listening to more podcasts with that conversation, you know, my podcast is called Love Food and it, I intentionally wanted people who um, are experiencing that diet culture and trying to find a way out to be the driver of the content. And so what I have people do is they write a letter to food, and Nicole helped me answer one of these letters once. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and so, but, you know, just listening through the letters and hearing other people experiencing the same thing. And what I try to do then is give some, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of um possible solutions things that have helped other people things to try and um
0: very practical
1: I hope it is that's what it it tries to be and and um you know I feel like it's okay to kind of be at a place of like on deck with it and just listening for a while until it's the right time
0: Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I think that's, this, what you're doing and changing this whole narrative, the whole conversation about weight is so important. And, you know, my experience seeing clients is just life changing, Mm -hmm. that they have now more energy to do things that they, that, you know, they use their talents differently. They, you know, there's all this, this more space to say, well, what, you know, do I want to travel? Do I want to make stuff? Do I want, you know, it's just, it's like giving them their life back.
1: Right. You know, people talk about their biggest complaint is like food has too much power. Like I'm always thinking about it. I don't want to think about it anymore, any more than I have to. And Mm -hmm. doing this type of work, it does, it opens up the space so they can find themselves again, you know, and, and connect to like their joy and relationships and and spirituality, you know, connecting the mm-hmm. things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. And um, that is exactly what I want, you know.
0: That's lovely thank you so much for the work you do Ju- Julie and you're you're just uh, you're like a powerhouse you know <laughs> I can feel your passion and you know I follow you and you get really riled up and it's like Evelyn Trivoli too I as I said to her you know you watch her talk and it's almost like a religious experience <laughs> you know she just she's just uh talks and such she gets so animated and she's so into it and it's it's a real pleasure. It's, um, but I, I really appreciate all your work and um and and how much you help people and and I think that the way you explained it today is very clear and and I'm hoping that our listeners can to understand it and, and to try a new way to be with food. Like there's a whole new world out there that you don't have to be tortured which is i think a word that you use you don't have to be tortured Mm -hmm. there's other options
1: right yeah it's not you don't need to keep trying to fix yourself
0: Mm -hmm. Mm yeah yeah that's such a profound message thank you so much for for sharing that with us today
1: thank you nicole it was my pleasure and it was great to connect
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners, so send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash Zestful Aging and consider making a small donation. You will be eligible for insider-only goodies and behind-the-scenes information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.